and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks, Zach. To preach a chapter like Ephesians 2, you have to find the right altitude, if I can use that analogy, because you could go literally word by word, preposition by preposition, conjunction by conjunction, and every word would be meaningful. I could kind of raise the altitude up and see a bigger picture, maybe fly at 10,000 feet where you got to see Delmarva and Chesapeake and the Delaware Bay and all that. Probably won't get into every single word, but I want you to see this chapter. So this chapter brings a huge amount of encouragement. And this chapter, it just gives life to so many things. This chapter gives you the opportunity to see your identity in a fresh way, seeing how God sees you, seeing you the purpose and the meaning he has for your life. So there's nothing like small ball about this chapter. It is important stuff. It's, but let, let me be honest, in kind of the way we're conditioned in, if, if we think someone's trying to build us up, if someone is trying to communicate, I am for you, generally like, the way we hear that is, well, then they're going to pay us a lot of compliments. That's where they're going to start. They're going to tell us lots of good things about us. They're going to ignore some of our weaknesses, cover over those. They're going to say lots of good things about us. And we're going to feel very, very affirmed. We're going to feel in some ways like puffed up. But this, this chapter actually, all that encouragement comes, but it starts in just such an unconventional way. Actually, we're we start with being told how dark the picture of who we are really is, or we could say was. Again, it's, it's an unconventional way to tell you of your value and meaning and purpose, but it is the way this chapter begins. So you see it. You see it right there in verse 1, right? And we're, let, let's just walk through some of these words. It does say we were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead. So this is life and death category. Trespasses, sins, which is, you know, disobedience, offenses before God. That is our condition. This is not, again, starting off with, you're just a great person. This is starting in a very different spot, right? And it tells us we walked in those sins. We walked in those trespasses, in which you once walked, verse 2, you followed the course of this world. So this wasn't an occasional slip-up, a mistake that you normally don't make, but you made a, a, 
once in your life. This is like, no, you walked in this path. You were traveling along this path. The course of this world, the world being a system here, the world being a system, the culture, the values, the marketing, the, the success, the dream life, the way it's supposed to be, that, that world which is diametrically opposed to God. You're walking in that path. That's what the passage says. And then it says we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that is talking about our adversary, the devil, who is a commander of powers in an unseen world. It, it definitely makes us uncomfortable. Scripture doesn't talk about it all the time, but when it talks about it, it's very, very clear. We have a wicked spiritual enemy, a dark adversary working against us. And there was some rule or sway he held over our life. This is how dark the picture really is, really was. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions. I do want you to hear this in verse 3. We, we lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the desires of of the mind. Did you notice that word flesh? Did you notice that word body? Did you notice that word mind? All those things should tell you as much as we talk about the devil, as much as we talk about the world. Actually, the biggest problem we have is an in here problem, not an out there kind of problem. I mean, that is flesh, mind, body. The flesh meaning not so much our skin and the organs and, uh, of our body, not so much that. No, it's talking about our inner wiring. What makes you do what you do? What makes you do what you want to do? Sometimes at the expense of doing what God wants you to do. The flesh being those desires, those inclinations, those urges. Whatever you just feel like doing, that's the flesh. You know, we, we try to excuse some of it sometimes. When I talk about the flesh and the mind and the body, it would be easy for you, and maybe you said it this week, well, I'm just human. We're just human. And you know what? You can say that, and that can be 100% accurate. But at some point, you get to the place where you realize that that's not an excuse, and that doesn't just, like, make everything go away. So I have a bad attitude toward my kids and I just say, well, I'm just human. Well, yeah. Does it mean it hurt less? I behave like a jerk. I put myself first. I'm just being human. I mean, do you see the picture here? Do you see the unflattering picture? It says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our status before God. This is how dark the picture was. We were under, we were under God's wrath. So when someone does something wrong to us, we say, we want to hold them accountable. Like, people need to be held accountable these days. And that's, that's an impulse we have, but should accountability come to us for who we are, who we've been, what we've done, how we've not obeyed God? You know, as I try to paint the picture of how dark the situation is, how dark the picture really is or was, I do want to be cautious here, okay? Would you please not miss this? Because you could miss here what I'm saying. And I say that because at times I feel like 
passages like this can almost slide into a misperception that God just relishes telling us how useless and worthless we are. I mean, the picture is so dark that if you hear this, if you hear the, the description, and if somewhere in your past, and I don't think this is hypothetical at all for many in the room, if somewhere in your past you've been conditioned to hearing insulting, demeaning things, someone telling you you're worthless, someone calling you and your life a a total disappointment, someone telling you you're toxic, someone calling you a tramp, telling you you have messed everything up, someone telling you you're stupid, you're such a mistake, then you could get the wrong picture of hearing the first three verses of Ephesians. What's not going on here, I mean, don't, this is still an awful picture. And there's an honest assessment here. So clearly, clearly we aren't just a victim. We know how to find that in our culture. We know how to be victims pretty, pretty easily. Clearly we're not just a victim. Clearly we're rebellious participants in this description. But I don't want you to mishear this. Because this whole description is not meant to humiliate you. What it is is actually a recognition of how dehumanizing This is what the description is, how dehumanizing the world, our flesh, sin, the devil, how dehumanizing all those forces can be, how degrading, how debasing, how often it can leave you feeling like you are less than. Listen, that, that is not who you were meant to be. I mean, we, we have just come out of a series in Genesis where we are told every person I am looking at is an image bearer of God. Every person that I'm looking at has been blessed by God. Every person is in the line of a family who God has breathed life. Since he breathed life into Adam, he became a living soul. I mean, God highly highly values us. You've been made in his image. God loves you, but sin is what deadens you. Sin is what literally takes the life from you. So let's just make sure we're clear on that. We were dead, and, and we know. We know what death brings. Death brings separation. It brings distance. It brings no future. It brings like no animating activity. To be clear, God doesn't relish that description of how dark the situation was. I will tell you, based on so many scriptures in the Bible, what God actually does relish is reminding us of how deep grace goes. How deep grace does go. Again, we're in a a chapter where every word matters, but we'll just try to kind of take them phrase by phrase as we see exactly how God's grace just comes to life. Look at verse 4. I love that transition there, but God. So we just kind of even did the Q&A, like, well, who is God? Well, he's the one who is rich in mercy. He's the one that, like, what is his strong suit? It would be mercy. It would be showing mercy. And then it it extends, his, his love can hardly be believed. That's what he's filled with because of the great love with which he loved us. Despite, despite the conditions, 
Despite us being dead, he embraced us. Even when, verse 5, right? We were dead in our trespasses. What exactly did he do when we were dead in our trespasses? Well, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. He infused us with life. Again, we're in Genesis 2 categories. He breathed life into Adam. And now, through Jesus Christ, he breathes life back into us when we were spiritually dead. And notice he does this. He made us alive. And it's so important that you see it there in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. And over and over again, what you're going to find is what God does in your life. He does, not just because he's doing great things for you, but he wraps your life up with Christ, with Jesus. It, It is almost as if the rest of Ephesians 2 cannot continue. When God talks about you, he's talking, he's going to talk, he's going to mention Jesus Christ and wrap your lives together. I love the picture. It tells us that by grace we've been saved, meaning we didn't help. Only by grace. Verse 6, he raised us up with him, with Jesus. He seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Our company is Jesus. He's in the heavenly realm. And look, God's not finished, not by a long shot. There's a future orientation. Verse 7 says, so that God has this plan, and he has all the time in the world to accomplish this plan in the future, in the coming ages, he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Words like grace and mercy and kindness. Would you again hold up just a minute? Like when you hear the word grace, all this, every idea about this is 100% God. All of it When you hear grace, every bit of it is his work. I I take no credit. I had no initiative in this matter. 100% a gift. Not a reward. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not your own doing. We don't play the major role. It's a gift of God not a result of works so that we don't we don't th- think we could brag we just you know what we did we believed god opened our eyes and we believed and we received grace instead of giving us think about it like if if i told you if you told me here's how messed up your life is curtis but have no fear we have a corrective action plan for you and we've got bullet points to walk you through that corrective action plan. That would be in the works category. But instead of that, we receive grace. Look how deep grace goes. We are given not an action plan, but a person. And our lives are wrapped up with him. So some of you do something that I do, and that is, okay, so you see a friend, and that friend is with someone you don't know, and So you're talking to that friend and he says, hey, let me introduce you to someone you haven't met yet. This is my good friend or this is my, my, you know, a person I work with or I've known this person a long, long time. And sometimes you'll say to this new person you're meeting and you associate with him and you kind of smile and it's a way of teasing a little bit and just communicating like we're okay. It's some realm of safety here where we can joke around a little bit. You really associate with this person, but what is no joke to me is that Jesus Christ 
associates with us is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This is exactly how deep grace goes. Jesus is locked into us. I feel like I should regularly get stunned by this. If you read literature when it comes to like organization or management or like communication, there's a phrase that I've read in multiple books that says vision leaks. So the idea is this, like if, if a CEO sets a vision, tries to make sure everybody on the, in the company is on board and, and says that, well, eventually people are going to forget that. They're going to go about their routine vision leaks. And so you have to remind them again and again and again of like, this is what matters. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And what I've actually realized in reading this passage is actually just how amazing grace is can also leak. The hour I first believed, grace felt really amazing. But then over time, we forget. Maybe we're not quite as stunned as we should be. I don't know, recently God has been working so hard in my life that every time I have an opportunity to preach, and I'd say even every time I have a chance to talk to someone, knowing that grace could leak, I... I want to be grace-filled. I want people to know of the amazing grace of God. It's, of course, I don't want to downplay or ignore any issues. But I just find like we need heavy doses of grace. It's not just about puffing people up. I think it is really trying to go deep, like scuba diving in categories in Ephesians 2, where, yes, God's grace is that amazing. I, I was writing this week to a friend, so he's a few years older than I am, and he's going through professionally what is like just the, the most major transition of his life. And so I, I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm praying for you. I wanted to check in because I knew this week particularly, a couple days this week would be really difficult. And he wrote an email, and I don't think he would mind me sharing. I, I'm not violating the confidence. He says, Curtis, this week has been crazy with lots of changes. But God has been faithful even when I am not. Oh, how disobedient I've been to God with my frustrations and doubt and fear and anxiety and on and on. However, as I type this email, he is reminding me just how faithful he is to me. So the change has happened and I actually have an even better job than I had before, which I dreamed up every possible horrible circumstance. And my wife loves Jesus, my children and me. My kids are thriving in college and facing obstacles and opportunities that will shape them into responsible adults that serve King Jesus. I woke up in a warm home. I had ample food to eat and so on and so on. Oh, Curtis, God is so good and I am so wretched, but I am in awe of his faithfulness to me. And in reading those words, I thought, this person gets grace. This person gets it. I need to get it like that. I need to get it like that. And by the way, just what occurred to me this week is when I think about the new heavens, which were seated there already in Christ, it says the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever it will be, it won't be a cold, sterile environment where we're walking on pins and needles because we just don't want to disappoint someone. 
if you think of grace and you think of an environment where grace just kind of runs its course, where it has freedom, then imagine the new heavens and the new earth like this. Imagine it being filled with people, being filled with lost people who have been found. Imagine it being filled with people who were broken and now have been healed. Imagine what it would be like to be around a bunch of trespassers who've been forgiven and restored. Blind people who now see beggars who are now seated with Jesus. Rebels who have been transformed, dead people who've been resurrected, made alive. Can you imagine? That is how deep grace goes. You have to keep moving in this chapter. You, again, you, I'm tempted to bog down, but look at verse 10. We keep moving because it says, for all the facts that like, it isn't about your good works, but notice here in verse 10, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is how active, like notice here how active our walk will be, how active our walk will be. So salvation is about amazing grace, but it isn't just like transactional. We're told something far greater. God has gone to work on us. Some translations say even masterpiece. So God is doing his work and there is work he's doing. He's gone to work, making us to be what we were meant to be. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And, and I love it because it's like, if you think of a good work, just know God's already ahead of you on that. If you have an idea of something you could do that would be good, God's already beat you to that. He already has this mapped out. He already has good works mapped out for your life. Good works mapped out for those who you will come into contact with. Think about home, think about work, think about family, think about neighbors, think about where you're volunteering, where you're serving, scenarios to walk and live and move through life. Think about all the heartwarming things that you could do that will communicate things that are nice and kind. Think about all the hard good works that you will do, sometimes telling a person the truth when they need to hear it, sometimes being the caregiver in the last days of someone's life when it's nothing but hard. Think about the times you walk with a person through uncertainty. And it's not easy, but you're there. Yeah, good works are heartwarming and they're hard. And God says, I I didn't just save you to give you some eternal liability insurance. I've actually mapped out a plan for you. This is how active you are meant to be till he returns. Keep our eyes open to what God is already doing. And again, you could stop there, but I think for lots of years, that's where I did stop. I memorized the first 10 verses of that, this whole chapter years ago, I think when I was in high school or college. But being pastor of Ogletown Baptist Church has made me just as excited about the second half of Ephesians 2 as I am the first half. Because there's another stage is set and it's a different kind of stage. It's not just kind of me as an individual, but it starts getting into a group dynamics, collective dynamics. Look at verse 13 there, or uh, verse 11, sorry. It says, therefore remember that at one time, and it speaks to you Gentiles, you are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that it, you were at that time, you were just separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You as a group, right, had no hope without God in the world. 
so much we could say there, but it's, it's the real recognition that God worked through the nation of Israel. And there was a sense that if God didn't widen that scope, it would almost be like when Messiah comes, it's just not for you. You need not apply. And that would leave us in a position, according to verse 12, of no hope, no God, stuck in this world without much of a clue, collectively. But this isn't just about our individual salvation. This is collectively what God is doing. And we're told in this chapter how God has united us. Like that's another picture here, how united God has made us. And in this chapter, you start hearing things like, well, once, but no longer. Or once, but now. And and I want you to listen as we read these words, and we'll read through them pretty quickly, but I want you to hear words of distance and division that now have been replaced by proximity and unity. Hear all the times the word both is said, and then hear how it merges into like one, like you're made one. Like, let's see how united God has made us. Let's, let's look at verses 13 to 22. It's like, okay, we didn't have a clue as to what God was doing, but now in Christ Jesus you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, instead of a long way away. That's not the case anymore. Verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. At one point in time, you were like, yeah, here's the in-group, and you're out there. It's like all that's been broken down now by what Christ has done. You're united with him. He has brought peace. And he's brought peace even abolishing the law of commandments, verse 15, expressed in ordinances, so that he could make, so that he could create in himself one new man. So there was Adam, and now he's creating one new man. A a new humanity, a new family of people. Animosity is over. Separation is over. Verse 16, he reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross. He kills the hostility. So here's the picture. Like there's Jews and Gentiles and both needed Jesus to do what he did desperately. And so how can we be hostile against each other if the cross has brought us together? We both needed what Jesus did. And now we come together. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. So outsiders needed the message insiders needed the message for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father just equal access i don't know if you think like certain people are more spiritual than you better connected to god than you but just hear how this flattens it out everyone comes to the father through the spirit because of what jesus did so then verse 19 you are no longer strangers and aliens You're not foreigners. No, no, the better word would be citizens, fellow citizens. A better word would be saints, God's people. A better word would be the household of God, like family. That would be the better word, citizens, God's people, family. Communicating without mistake that you belong here. You may not think you do. You may have reasons why you've never felt like you belonged with the people of God. And this says, if you're relying on Jesus... Oh, no, no, you belong here. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
So Jesus, it starts with King Jesus and then the apostles and prophets extends to us in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple, a holy temple in the Lord. All take shape, everything carefully joined together. And in him, in verse 22, you also are being built together. Well, this is just amazing. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul reminded us earlier. This is so much more than just like assembling a bunch of people in one place on a Sunday morning. This is so much than just being a collection of people who like these programs and these activities and kind of like how this, kind of the style of this place, this is so much more than that. Like this is a dwelling, did you read that? Like this is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's forming us into a place where like, yeah, this is the place where God is at home blows our mind. Notice how united God has made us. Just how united God has made us. Access, citizens, foundation, brick by brick, growing into what God has designed us to be. I do love this chapter. It's actually a chapter that I shared when I preached my dad's funeral. So it runs very, very deep for me. If everything that I've said based on Ephesians 2, is true. And to the core of my being, I believe it is. Then I would ask you, like, what else do you really need? What else could be added to that? What would prevent you? I'm trying to think through, like, what would prevent you from resting in Jesus? If this is all true, What else do you need to be okay? What does it matter what others think of you or say about you? If this is what God is destining, ordaining, doesn't that change things? If this is what you've experienced, some of us, like we were rescued, we were saved, and humanly speaking, our eyes were open. We, We sang, Jesus loves me, this I know from the time we were a child. And we believed it. And it grew and it grew and it grew and we had to own it for ourselves. And some of you, like you sang it, but it, it never quite registered. I mean, you were part of church, but then when you were in high school or then you went to college, oh, it clicked. Eyes open. You saw the truth. Maybe it was like you had a friend who had something you wanted and it's like, man, they, they have something. There's a piece that they have. There is a, a center to their lives that like, I want that. What you didn't know is you didn't want a thing. You needed a person. And maybe that's how you came to faith. Maybe you moved to a new country. Maybe you moved to a new area. Maybe you had your first child and it sparked something. Maybe you came to the end of yourself and you thought, I need to start looking for God only to find out he had your number. He tracked you down. It didn't really start with you looking for him. He found you and always knew exactly where you were and always knew the timing and the set of circumstances for your life, maybe even to unravel or come together. I I don't know what your story is, but I do know God's love is there. And I I do wonder, like, okay, what could be better than that? So 
For some of you, I might be inviting you to trust in Jesus and it might be the first time you've ever done that. You're taking like those like very, very first steps of faith. For some of us, it's like the 20,000th time we've heard, by grace, you're saved through faith. And man, it has not gotten old. God the Father is for you. Jesus Christ is with you. And the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. What more can we ask for? Father, what we do ask for is faith to believe it. We need your help. The news might seem like it's too good to be true. It may seem like it's for other people, maybe more like church people than than what we feel on the inside. But I do pray that you would open eyes here to pay attention to what you're saying. Open ears to listen carefully to your voice. And I pray as we walk out of these doors, we will know that we have lived in all of your goodness, all of your faithfulness. So remind our hearts of that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.